No, I really am. I know I'm not joking at all. I, uh, um, can I just ask you guys real quick, who was here last week? Was everyone... I, I got to tell you, that was one of the best messages I think I've ever heard in my life. I think I honestly, one of the best sermons I've ever heard in my life from Pastor Chuck. And uh, we are going through an amazing, amazing series, Authentic Christianity. Now, Pastor Chuck is up in Roseville. He's actually speaking for a friend uh, this weekend. And so we need to be praying for him and just waiting for him to come home. He'll be back this week. And he's super excited. We're going through 2 Corinthians next week. He actually said, make sure and tell everyone I'm really, really, really super pumped. This is just so you all can look at yourself and see how beautiful you are. Um, in this mirror. So, but yeah, he wants you guys to know he's pumped for next week. And I had a kind of an interesting weekend. On Friday, uh, we uh, got a chance to go to the hospital, and that's kind of why I'm emotional. I think I'm just tired because I don't want to admit that I actually would be emotional as a man. But uh, what happened on Friday morning is, is my wife's been pregnant for like two decades. And, <laughs> and so Friday morning, we finally got to go to the hospital out in Kaiser and everything, and we had the C-section, and they cut Peyton Faith out of my wife, and she's eight pounds, 12 ounces. And she's, yes, praise God. And she is a sumo wrestler. She's a sumo wrestler. No, she's huge. And uh, if my son ever touches her, she will hammer the kid down. It's amazing how big she is. Now, I don't know about you, but the weirdest thing was the moment that I held on to um, onto baby Peyton. I, you know, as a, as a dad, I think with boys, it's different. You kind of look at them for a second, right? And you, and, you, and you hold them in your hands when they come out, and you think, okay, you know, we'll kind of rough and tumble a little bit. Uh, maybe kind of if you mess around, I'll just beat you with an inch of your life, and it's no big deal, you know? And, but then all of a sudden, I don't know how many of you dads would say this is true, you, you picked up your, your girl for the very first time, and uh, you just sit there for a second, and you don't kind of know what, what to do. You're thinking about all the emotions that are going to come out of her, and you're thinking about, what am I going to do with the boys? You're looking around the little nursery at all the other boys, thinking, should I just arrange a marriage now? I mean, what is like, you know, what do I do? And, but you know what's crazy is in that moment, as I sat there and looking at baby Peyton, and I, I got emotional because I thought, I am just so inadequate. You ever have that emotion where you think, I don't even know where to start with this one. I'm inadequate. And see, last week, Pastor Chuck in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 started setting up what authentic Christianity is. You remember? The impact of it, the influence of it, how it's a success story, how you're going to have such a reality and an optimism that you never could comprehend. But see, what we're going to talk about today in chapter 3 is something even more amazing. It's, it's the idea of adequacy. And it's a life and death decision when we begin asking ourselves, just like Paul did in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, what is adequacy and who is the person that's adequate. So open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and let's pray. Father, I want to ask real quick that uh, this morning will be a morning where we can come together, and, and just as uh, that song from Chalmer, um, I think, made a lot of us parents emotional as we realize that we are leading a generation. We have kids that are looking up to us, and just as I saw this weekend with uh, baby Peyton Faith, and Lord, I want to ask that the same way we'll be able to look to you understanding that you are our dad. Understand that you are the father of lights, the one who reaches down and picks us up when we're hurting, the one who has love for us, the one who gave us hope and a plan. And I want to pray, God, even right now, Holy Spirit, that you will be here with us, speaking to us, that the words that we talk about the next few minutes will not come from me or be things that anyone in this room has planned in their heart, but words, Holy Spirit, that you in this moment want us to know. And we ask this in your powerful name, and we pray together, amen. Now, real quick, look in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's begin reading together. Start in verse 4. Let's ask and answer the question of adequacy. Verse 4 says, Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from 
God. In verse 6, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, a lot of you in here would say, you know, I've been in church a long time. I understand kind of the concept of the Old Testament law versus the New Testament, the covenant of grace. But I think sometimes we get a little bit um, immersed in the New Testament, and we forget a little bit about the Old Testament. Now, real quick, who here understands the concept of the Mosaic Law? It was was given in the Old Testament in Exodus 34, mostly. Does everyone remember that? Good. What you have is a law that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. Most of you would say, I get it, I understand, and I understand that Moses walked down with these tablets with engraved on it in stone. It was the very word of God, what he wanted us to know, the things he had planned for us, the things he had planned for 1,500 years, the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, how they were supposed to live, what they were supposed to do. Now, what's interesting here is if you stop for a second, you go, okay, all those things Chuck talked about last week, I want that in my life. I want to be an authentic Christian, a Christian who's on fire, a Christian who's loving and leading and living in optimism and in hope. Here's the thing. We ask, okay, why in the world does Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 begin talking about the law? Because he understands one of the issues that was going to come and was in the church and was going to come is the issue of legalism and the idea of living still in the law. People didn't understand that a freedom had been given, a hope had been given. If you look in chapter, actually verse 6, look what he says. He says, for the letter kills. Kills is a Greek word, apokteno, which actually refers to the idea of a figurative meaning, a spiritual death, the lack of spiritual vibrance. He says, you know what, so many of you Christians, although I've told you to live in optimism and reality and success and victory, although I've wanted to give you hope, you still live in the past. You still live in a sense of spiritual uh, death where you walk around and you go, okay, I'm, I'm not really understanding why I don't have any hope and freedom. Do you know why he says that? Because we're still living in the law. And I want you to write this down if you have your pens and your papers out. Write down, the law leaves no hope. It leaves no hope. Now, what he's saying here is there's a moment back in the Old Testament where Moses came down the mountain. Can you picture it? He stands there with these, you know, what what eventually became over 600 pharisaical laws, and he puts them down in front of the people. And they look at this, and they go, oh, man, there ain't no way that ever going to happen. And then they get a little frustrated. And you can picture, imagine if you have a barometer. I'm going to picture it as a measuring tape, okay? You have a measuring tape here that's seven feet tall. Now, there's not many of you in this room that are seven feet tall. If you are, let's start a basketball team. But if you were, just picture a measuring tape that's seven feet tall, and you go, I'm always going to be six foot two. Some of you are always going to be five foot two. Some of us, like, you know, Natalia, our worship leader, will always be four foot 11. No, she's five foot one. But then you go up here and you go, okay, some of us are going to be six foot four, six foot five, or six foot six. You're going to be Matt Wandell, the big worship leader, at six foot six, and that's amazing. The problem is when you have something that's perfect. It says seven foot is the bar to be reached. You can never make yourself perfect. You can't make yourself whole. You can't make yourself complete. So you wake up every morning and you get in this turmoil and this frustration, this rigidity and this legalism if you're dealing with the law, the letter of the law, because you go, there's no way. And so what he had is a bunch of people for 1,500 years who would wake up every morning and they would say, oh man, there's no way I'm going to make it today, so I'll go ahead and do my sacrifice. And then Monday morning comes again, they fail again at a certain area, then they do their sacrifice again, and pretty soon this big cycle continues. And everyone's sitting around and they're kind of going, oh, you know what, I'm just frustrated, I'll never be perfect. That was the law. The law kills because it gives you perfection, shows you how you can't meet perfection, never gives you answers or power to even come close to perfection, so all you are is more aware of your failure. Now, here's the thing. Paul knew it, and today, a lot of Christians are still living in the letter of the law. You walk in, you constantly feel pressure, guilt, accusation. Satan wants Christians living in the letter of the law. You know that? 
He wants you to always be questioning your past. He wants you to look at things and mistakes you made and have them haunt you and have them creep up on you. That's what he wants because it leaves no hope. Now, what's crazy is a lot of us would say, you know what, that's me. I live in that, in that aspect of my life. That's the way I live. I've been so frustrated and consumed with the things I didn't do, the things I did wrong. It eats away at me. But you know what's more scary? Is a lot of people in churches today, and a lot of, I know, I know I've done this many times, it's not about me living in the law. It's also about the way that I always force others to live in the law. There's a story in John chapter 8. You remember where Jesus is sitting there with a woman caught in adultery and they begin to want to stone her? Yeah, let's kill her! And they grab rocks and they're going to pelt her and he looks at everyone there, each of the Pharisees, each person, and he says, if you are without sin, you cast the first stone. And what happens? One by one, rocks begin to drop and people turn around like little hurt puppies. And they walk away. And then he looks at her and he says, go sin no more. But look what he says in John 8 verse 31. He says, if you continue in my word, those that are left standing there, the disciples, he says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, this, unfortunately, is something that churches and Christians, and Paul understood, would get so twisted, a concept that would be so wrong. You notice it says that you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free? You see that? Let's focus on it for a second, and let's be really honest. Does it say that you will know the truth and the truth is going to give you a weapon to go out and attack everybody with? Oh, no, he says, you'll know the truth and then all of a sudden the truth is going to give us the ability to go out and tell everyone what movie to watch because, oh, that's rated R. You'll know the truth and it's going to tell you to go out and say, oh, you can't go dancing. You will know the truth. It's going to give you and tell you, oh, you can't tell people what bottle of wine to buy. You will know the truth and the truth will tell you, oh, you can't go on that website. You'll know the truth and it will tell you you can't go on that TV show. You'll know the truth and that's not what it says, right? It says you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. You see, there's a liberty that comes in Christianity, but see, what happens is, as Paul knows, we want tendency as humans to live in this, this enraptured and external set of rules, the set of religion versus relationship, and he says, this is something will actually destroy and harm and kill, and it leaves no hope. You know why? Because it has us in bondage. It has us in bondage. Pretty soon, everything we do becomes human ritual it's not because we have a heart for it. It's because someone told us to do it, and there's no hope in that. Now, let's just be real open here. You saw my mirror, and everyone's sitting here thinking, why in the world is this mirror up here, right? That's what you're thinking. Why would someone do this? A lot of times, I think, we wake up in the morning, and we come to church, and you look in the mirror, and there's all these things that are in our life. There's these things that destroy us, that hurt us. I know mine, if I was really blunt with you, is pride. I get so sick and tired of my pride, but you know I hold on to my pride all the time? But what's crazy is, is we put this big smile on, this big mask, right? And we walk into church and we go, hey, brother, how you doing, sister? And we walk down and we give a big hug and we smile and everything. Meanwhile, we've just stood in front of a mirror at our house and we've looked at all the things that look back at us, the addictions, the frustrations, the jealousies, the selfish ambitions, the pride, the lust, the stuff that we've gotten engaged in in pornography that's destroying our marriage, the adultery that's involved in it, and it all looks back at us. We paste a big mask of a smile on and we come in here and we go, holy, 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 and we raise our hands in worship. Meanwhile, we're looking around. All of us brought something in a little sack that we set underneath our chair, not wanting anyone to know because it's haunting us, it's destroying us, but it's a mask, a smile. We don't let anyone know. Now, let's be honest. Work with me here. I'll write mine up here. So I would say that one I deal with all the time, I don't know if you can see this, is pride. I hate this one, and it constantly gets me down, but you know what? Satan wants it to consume me even more. 
He's always pulling at me. What are some other ones? I mean, I would say, um, you guys feel free to feed into this. We'll just do this together. This will be like a dialogue, okay? Because you're all looking at me like, is this guy crazy? No, I'm not. I'm a normal person. I promise. Let's have a good rapport, okay? So jealousy, okay? That's a big one for me, um, you know? So I'll just make a little line there. Lust. Now, all you guys are thinking, I didn't want to be the one to yell that out because my wife's sitting next to me. But, you know, now, what about insecurity? Anyone? Okay. That's a big one, huh? Isn't that weird how they all kind of feed into each other? Whatever you do, don't make fun of my handwriting. I didn't even go to second grade. Hey, what else? What you got? Selfishness. Selfishness. Wow. Amen. Okay. Keep the bulletins away from that guy. Okay. <laughs> what else do we got here? Just kidding. Hey, what is it? Idolatry. Idolatry. Isn't that so true? What kind of car do you drive? A 700 series BMW? No, I'm just kidding. So, idolatry. Okay. So we got that. If I misspell it, just forgive me. It's okay. What else do we got? So we got that one. We got that one. Any others? Oh, temper. Woo! Oh, man. Okay. I'm going to come back to that one. I'm going to circle that. Anyone else? Which one? Materialism. Yeah, that's huge. Okay, we got that. Now, we're all looking in this mirror. It's all coming back. It's reflecting at us. I'm going to put, now this is crazy. I'm going to put abuse. Do you realize that a lot of us would say, you didn't bring that on yourself. You were three, four, five, ten years old, and things begin to happen to you. But guess what? You still hold on to it as a source of your own immorality. You haven't let go of it yet. It's something that weighs down on you. I'm going to put abuse. I'm going to put past, just in general, in big letters on there because it stares at us. And people keep bringing it up and throwing it in our face because a lot of times in churches in general, we live in the law. One more. Woo, okay, that might be four, but okay, addiction, depression, our board's getting kind of huge. Isn't it, isn't it crazy when we realize just how messed up everyone in this room is? It's kind of, it's good to know, it's a little freeing, right? Like Chuck talked about last week. Okay, I'm going to stop now because the mirror can't handle any more of our sickness. So, well, here's what's crazy, okay, so about, I'm one year married with Brienne. I love Brienne, she's the most amazing, beautiful wife in the world, she is gorgeous inside and out. About one year in, we get married, things are going well, I think. I just became a pastor. And it was a neat time. Now, before I tell you the rest of the story, I gotta ask women, when we get done, I'm gonna ask them to beg that you be my friend. Okay? So don't okay. We're hanging out, and there's a day where the air conditioning goes off. Now you know in the summer when the air conditioning goes out and it's been this hot. You know the tension that begins to remember we talked about anger that begins to, to breed and come out of us men. And I remember sitting there, and I'm thinking, all right, we got to go to church tonight. It's hot in here. What are we going to do? And, and there's this moment where we're thinking, how is this going to work? And I thought, I am going to be so patient and so pastoral. And everyone is just going to, um, and my wife, is, she's going to love me because she sees I'm a leader. And things were going well. We got about an hour or two, an hour and a half out before we went to church that Sunday night, and I thought, here's my plan. I'm going to jump in a cold shower. I have the clothes all ready, and I'll jump in the car. It takes her about 45 more minutes to get ready. I'll be sitting in the air conditioning. I'll be in a good mood when we go to church. But I forgot I hadn't washed any clothes. So I did what any good husband does. I said, you know what? It's hot. I don't care. Honey, I'm going to tackle this one, right? That's what good husbands do, amen? We do our own laundry, yeah. But I don't understand this whole white versus black thing. So I just went down, and I, well, I don't understand it. So I put all the clothes in there together. I walked down, and I started doing laundry. Now, I was so excited to have some clothes that I could work with and have some things that I could get ready with, and so I was so proud. I walked up, and I told her. I said, hey, babe, I just did the laundry. You know, I'm so proud of myself. I'm so pastoral. And then I come down, and I, I finally get my clothes. I put them all, I bring them up, and I set them on the bed in a big lump. I figure the longer they sit on the bed, the less chance I have of having to put them away. So um, there's this moment where I'm sitting there, 
I go in, I take a cold shower, and I come back out. Now, I, I don't understand really how this works, but we're hanging out, and I'm walking, I walk by the room, and for some reason, I gotta tell you, here's the crazy thing about me. I don't like, like, sweat, and, you know, I'm kind of OCD and perfectionism. I don't like sweat and stickiness and all that, as you can tell, um, and so I had put my clothes there. I walked by, and for some reason, my wife had chosen not to do her hair in the bathroom, but on the bed. So I'm like, okay, what's going on here? And I remember walking by the room. She had pulled the big mirror over next to her, and she sat there. And now, girls, I don't really understand, women, what you're doing with these cans of hairspray that are like fire extinguishers. <laughs> but she's sitting on the bed, and it's a can of called Big Sexy. And I'm thinking, I don't like you, Big Sexy, because as she's spraying, I'm watching as the, the, little, the little molecules of hairspray go up over her slick back hair, falling, and they're gleaming through the sunlight, and they're falling down onto my newly washed clothes. Now, inside you have that emotion where you think, okay, um, hold control, 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 you know, and it's rising inside. And so I control it. And I say, hey, honey, it's, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, and I just put my head down. But then another spurt, <sighs> molecules up, down, through the sunlight, onto my newly washed laundry. And I just, lo I just lost it. I said, uh, honey, wh what you doing? Now, husbands, you never want to start a conversation with what you doing. That just doesn't go well. She looks up at me with her big doe eyes, you know, all innocent and everything. And I'm just saying, honey, what you doing? Don't you understand? What do you mean understand? Well, don't you understand? There's molecules. They're coming down all over the thing on molecules. What are you even talking about? You know, on my, you know, and then we get into it. You know how those fights happen? Boom, for no reason overnight. And pretty soon you're going at it. You're serious. So she storms down the hallway. She runs in. She goes into the bathroom, takes her big fire extinguisher with her. And then she goes and locks the door. Now you have that moment where you're yelling at a door. <laughs> I told you. And you, then you stop for a second and think, is this really happening right now? I'll never forget the moment that I hear these words come out from inside. It's really not a big deal. I said, what is not a big deal? Yes, it is a big deal. And we begin to go off and have this dialogue through the door. And then she says this thing. She says, if the shoe were on the other foot, it wouldn't matter. And I said, oh, really? So you're telling me if I weren't going to hairspray your clothes, you wouldn't care? Da -da 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 -da. No, I wouldn't matter. And so then she says that last line, and I just lose it. So I take that little thing off the top of the door. I begin doing the little lock. You know how you do? And you push it. Well, you do it too, don't you, when you're really angry? You go through, you bust the door. And here's what I did. The moment where a culminating moment in my life where truth hit sin, hit my carnality, my depravity, I'm not proud of this, but I did it. I opened the door, I reached in, I looked for that big old can of big sexy fire extinguisher, and I grab it and I said, you don't think it'd be a big deal? No! Okay, I'll show you. And I just turn around and I go charging, yeah, you already know where this is going. I go charging down that hallway, and then I sit there and I rip open that closet door, and she looks back at me, I look at her, our gazes, Sam, it's like, Doo -doo -doo. it's like one of those West, old West movies. And I just start spraying. I see the red. I see the orange. I'm like, ooh, target acquired, target acquired, target acquired. And I'm letting loose, letting go on all of her clothes. And then there's that moment where you look over your shoulder, you see her, and you just kind of freeze. I'm about to die right now. <laughs> you know that moment? And then you start thinking, what just happened right now? Now, ladies, you're already kind of saying, is this for real? Yes, it's for real. I told you, you got to be my friend. <laughs> but then there's this moment where I see her go back in the bathroom, and all the anger's gone, all the frustration and the resentment and the yelling, and I just hear this sobbing. <laughs> and now I'm feeling bad, and I walk over, and she says, do you even love me anymore? <laughs> oh, oh, 
take the knife out of my bag. And you know what's crazy is in that moment, I've never had a moment in our marriage so far where God so vividly said, Tony, what did you do? She was trying to do her hair, you idiot, you scum of the earth. And I thought, how do we do this? And you know, a lot of you would say, oh, I've had fights way worse than that. But I would say, you know what's crazy is if we're honest, how many of us look at a board like this and say, no, 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 it's not just the little things. I've committed the sin I swore I never would. Because see, I stood up on a, on a, on a stage like this and said, I'm going to love you in sickness and health for richer, for poor. I'm going to cherish you no matter what. And then the crazy part is, is that's just the beginning. When I look back at my past, if I were to really get honest in here and be transparent, I would say, you know what, maybe it was the addictions, maybe it was the alcoholism for me, maybe it was the fact that, you know what, not many people know the fact that when I was divorced and I left my wife and I committed adultery, and the thing is, is in this room, underneath your seats, underneath it all, there is a devil who says, live by the law, accusation, guilt, sin. It's only by the grace of God that we're able to even be here together, and that's what's so key about what happens here in the rest of 2 Corinthians. Look at the next verse, verse 7. The law leaves no hope, but verse 7 says, But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation, notice it's called the ministry of judgment, has glory. Much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. And then look down, jump at verse 11. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. You see, here he shows two things. He says, Mount Sinai happened. There were peals of thunder, there was lightning, there was all this, you know, this mountain covered with smoke, and then the pillar of God descended, and Moses is sitting there, and he's talking like a friend to God, and people stood around, and they worshiped, and he says, that was glory, as man knows glory. He says, but here's what's going to happen. When that begins to fade, Jesus Christ is going to come and die on a cross, rise again, and he's going to sit in heaven, and this glory will have nothing compared to the rising glory of perfection. Why? Because this wasn't perfect. This is perfect. This was something that gave you rigidity. This gives you hope. This was something that gave you legalism. This gives you freedom and joy and liberty. And he says there's going to be a translation that happens where all of a sudden the life that you get to live now continues to build and be bigger than the life we could have ever imagined before. Now, the reason I want you to write this down is the law leaves no hope, but Christ offers hope. Christ offers hope. He literally lays it out and says this is a new plan, a new way of living, a new covenant. Look at Colossians chapter 2 and look at verse 20. It says, if you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why is if you are living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as don't handle, don't taste, and don't touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with youth? Look at verse 23. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. You hold on to that. Do you see that appearance of wisdom line? Isn't that crazy? It's the idea of... Man lives by external means. You know, if you can climb on your knees a mountain, all of a sudden you're going to have uh, some kind of spiritual and religious understanding. If you can say enough prayers and you can say the biggest words in your prayers and you can tap your chest in enough ways in a certain time like this, then all of a sudden you're going to have a religious awareness that no one else will. It's the appearance of wisdom. And look what he says is the answer in in, uh, 3 verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In verse 2, set your mind, he says it again, on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. You see, what happens is the world focuses on the external. They focus on the measuring tape. And unfortunately, too many Christians do as well. But right here, Jesus, or Paul says, stop focusing on all of the do's and the do-nots. 
and start focusing on the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, the Savior. Because there's a translation and a change that begins to happen when I change my focus. See, a lot of times we all get consumed with all of this stuff over here and it begins to own us. Why? Because we're under what's called an outside-in philosophy. Have you ever noticed that? Where on the outside I've got all these things. My dad, my teachers, my, my, my mother. Someone told me what was right and wrong. And I kind of go, okay, cool, I guess we'll just do this. And so then it begins to bleed into my behaviors and into my attitude and into my personality. And finally I get to this point, if I'm lucky, where my heart actually understands why I do what I do and what I don't do. But a lot of you sitting here saying, it's too hard that way and it doesn't last. No, it doesn't last because you don't even understand the reason you do it. The difference that happens right here is it's called an inside out reaction where I stop and I sit one day and I get in my word and I go, okay, Jesus Christ, King of Kings, the Holy One, the one who loves me, listen, please talk to me right now. And I begin to pray and I begin to open my Bible and say, please talk to me. And all of a sudden there's a heart change that happens. I'm focused on heaven. I'm focused on the things above. And now what happens is it begins to glean out into my personality and into my attitude, then into my behaviors. And pretty soon there's this vibrant and explosive that actually comes out of you where people go, whoa, that's a Christian. That's a Christian right there. He smells like a Christian. Have you ever seen those smelly Christians? You just walk by him on the street and you're like, whoa, that guy smells like Jesus. You ever seen that before? These are the people that walk in. You all know who they are because some of you are them. Some of you have them as friends where they sit down at a restaurant. They sit on a table and the waiter walks over. So can I get you food? Wow, you Jesus smell. Sir, you know what? You walk through a grocery checkout and pretty soon they're leading the checker with the 30 seconds they have to the Lord in line, and you think, how is that even possible? Some people, they walk up to Starbucks, and they talk to every person in the room, and everyone knows they're the Jesus guy. Some of you ladies are at work, and your boss walks up, and he's like, you know, listen, I know you're doing a great job, but listen, you got to stop all the Jesus stuff. And you're like, you're like, what do you mean? What am I doing? He's like, I don't know. You just always seem like a Jesus person. It's an inside-out mentality that focuses first on heaven, and it doesn't focus on all the rules of this world. The law is what leaves you hopeless, because all this confronts you. Christ offers hope. When I look at scripture, I think a lot of you would say this, it's doxological in its wide context, right? It shows the glory of God. But what's really interesting is it's something else. See, for years and years and years, for thousands of years, people prophesied about this coming Messiah, the guy named Jesus who would come. And then there's this culminating point in history where he dies, he rises again, he sits in heaven, and then for 2,000 years, we've all looked back at that point, right? And everyone knows about it. The annals of history, the people, the scholars, the historians have all said, yes, this is a culminating point of history. Our calendars are judged by it. Everyone knows. Now, here's what that means. That means that the plan of Jesus, redemption, is part of the wider context of Scripture, And restoration is always the goal. Hope is always the goal. Grace is always the goal. Having an answer is always the goal. Not living in condemnation and judgment. There was a guy named Ishmael who walked in just a couple Wednesdays ago, and I don't blame him for being a little freaked out. He walked in, he had a scar across his neck. He walks in, and this guy is straight gangster. I'm just saying He is, man. I don't even know how you even say that any better. He just got out of a gang, just got out of prison. He had a scar across his neck, and he walks in. He goes, hey, Tony, um, I just got to tell you, I don't know. I didn't know who my name was. He said, hey, can I I come here? I was afraid to tell him no. (laughs) I wasn't going to tell him no. He said, no, Pastor Joel, I met with him yesterday, and I became part of this Jesus thing. I want to know more about him. He loves me. I love him. Let's do this. I'm like, okay, let's do this. Let's hold hands. Here we go. No, I didn't really do that. And so he walks in with me. We walk in and I'm like, well, do you understand what we're doing here? We're worshiping God. You know, he says, okay, I'll do that. 
Well, have you ever been baptized and publicly said to everyone in your crew or anyone that you know, anyone of our family that you want to know about, you're, you're, you're publicly declaring Jesus is the, the God of your life? And he says, no, but I'll do that. So I walk him back, I introduce him to Noah, and they begin talking back there, praying together more. And then within 15 minutes, by the moment that he walked into this room, he stood up in that very baptistry, and I sat there watching Ishmael with his scars, with the bullet holes that he had taken, with all the people that he had hurt, and all the addictions, and all the past, and the alcoholism, and being in gangs, and running with the wrong crowd. And I watched him dunk into that water, and come out free and people cheer and applaud. And here's the cool thing about it. I realized in that moment it was not about a life of perfection because Ishmael was not going to be able to drop everything in his life. But at that point I realized it was about a life of progression where I said, you know what? This is someone who's been in gangs but he has no clue that the gang that's in this room, the community of Christ followers, is going to have something stronger and get his back more than anyone and they're going to care about him more and love him more and he's going to have hope and have a future and he's going to have a truth because now he found Jesus. And here's the cool thing. Every time Ishmael Ishmael, the cool thing is every time Ishmael actually falls down, what we're not going to do is go, oh, you know what, sorry, son, uh, stay down there. No, we're going to pick him up. Every time he has pain, we're going to give him a plan. Every time he has fear, we're going to give him hope. Every time he's down, we're going to give him something more to get up, and we're going to put our arm around him, and we're going to walk next to him, because that's what the body of Christ does. It's about restoration. It's about hope. It's not about living in the law. That's what we do. Yeah, praise God. And... I'm going to pour something on you right now that I hope you, you get. The law keeps us in bondage. Christ offers hope. But look at the very end. Look at verse 12. Therefore, having such a hope. Now write this down. We must choose to have hope. You must choose it. In verse 13, it says, We're not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Do you realize what he was doing? He had a veil over his face because he went and met with God, but it began to fade. And out of pride and insecurity and failure, he thought, I don't want people to know that my connection with God is fading. And so he put a veil on because he was scared and nervous and prideful and insecure. And then it says in verse 14, But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the old covenant, the law, the same veil remains unlifted. And then look at verse 15. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is turned away. And this is my favorite verse in all of Scripture as of this week. I want you to look at verse 18. But we all. Does that say some people? Does it say only the spiritual Christians or only the elders or only the people who really get it, the Bible teachers and the disciplinarians? No, he says, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed I want you to notice that this mirror right here reflects your past, but it also reflects the law. This is the stuff that Satan pulls up and against you every single morning. And when you walked up and you tidied yourself this morning with your nice tie, your church Sunday tie, which we don't wear anymore, but if we did, we'd cut them off. And you sit there and you looked at it and then you put a big smile on with your nice makeup for girls only. And you wore makeup and your big, big lips and, you, and your big lipstick and you put a big smile and you walked into church thinking holier thou and you didn't let anyone know that all of this stuff is still creeping into your life and haunting you. And even right now, you have these thoughts going through your head. Here's the key to this verse. What happens when you look in a mirror? He says, once you turn to the Lord, you don't see that stuff anymore. You don't see you anymore. He says, you see reflected back at you the glory of the Lord. And then it finishes with the word transformed. Meaning that Christianity is not about my mess. And it's not about who I am. Christianity is about who we are becoming. 
It's not about my past. It's about my future. It's not about my presence. It's about eternity. It's not about who you are. It's what you're becoming. When I was 10 years old, Dad uh, came home with a weight bench. And I've told you this story before, but it, it just fits so well. And I, you know, I remember the moment he came home with a weight bench. I'm 10. He goes, Tony, you got to work out. You are so skinny, and you're going to get beat up in junior high. You know what that does to someone's ego and self-esteem? Do you understand? Yeah. And so he says, we're going to go downstairs. He puts it together, and then he says, now, you got to learn to bench press. Okay, Dad, I'll hang out with you. So I walk down there, and he puts it all together, and we're sitting in the basement that day, and he goes, I'm going to show you what to do. So right then, he walks over, and Dad grabbed like the, the, the 25, the 25, the, 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 the 10, the 10, the 5, the 5, the 2 and a half on both sides. He put them all on, and he latched them there. And he goes, now here's what you do, son. I thought, okay. And he lays down, and he does what every man does. He started breathing really loud. I don't know why we do that. I'm like, okay, what is this working out? I can do this too. And then he says, now you're going to spot me. What spot you mean? You hold on to the bar, and as I go down, I want you to help me if I get in trouble. Dad, I can't do that. Yes, you can, son. And then he does this noise that guys make when you work out. And then bar comes down. I'm watching the weights go back up, clank, clank, clank. And I'm like, whoa, my dad, my hero. That's amazing. And he had bench pressed 205 pounds. Doesn't seem like a lot now, but it still seemed like a lot. Then I'm watching this thing. He goes, okay, Tony, you want to work out? I thought, okay, I'll do that. Cool. So I sit down on the bench, and then I turn around, and he's taking all the weights off. Two, two, three and a half, five, 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 ten, 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 all the way to 25, and there's a bar. Now, guys, you know how this is, man. It's like, you know when you go to the gym at LA Fitness, it's not like you just sit there with a bar. Even if you put fake foam weights on, you ain't sitting there with a bar, you know? And so I'm sitting there, I lean back, and I'm like, Dad, what is this? He's just, work out, son. And so they're doing this thing. And you feel all floppy, and it's no fun. And then I'm like, this is working out, huh? Really fun. So we go upstairs after we're done, and I thought that was cool. But then I'm sitting at dinner, and you know the man ego inside? You start thinking like, oh, i got to really work out. So I sneak back down. I remember walking around, down the stairs, down the refrigerator. I shut the door so no one could hear me. And then I thought, I'm going to work out. I'm going to do what Dad did. 25, 25, 25, 25, 10, 10, 10, 10, 5, 5, 5, 3 and a half. Yeah, you all see where this one's going too. And so I sit there, I latch them on, and I swear to you, I breathe the way that my dad did. No, I did. I laid back on there, and I remember holding on to that bar, and then I made the same noise that Dad did. But back then, they didn't have the full, like, U things. They just had the little V ones, and so you could kind of could slide it off. Do you remember those ones? Yeah. That thing came down on me like a house. And I'm getting red, I'm turning, I'm thinking my life is over 10, I mean, I'm only 10 years old, I'm going to die, things must have getting red, and I'm making a sound like a dinosaur in Jurassic Park. And I don't even think anyone can hear me, I'm going to die, and I'm sitting there, I remember wiggling, you know, we just tried to wiggle, but they won't come off. Now, every guy in here is saying, yep, that's me, but I don't want to talk about it. And you're sitting there, and I remember that moment, it hurt. And I'm getting redder and redder. I can't breathe. Finally, at the very point where I thought I was done, I just let out, a, I just let out this one word. Help! But my ego was done. I didn't care. I didn't want to die that day in the gym or in the basement. My dad, I remember this moment where I heard, I heard the stairs. You know the stairs where dad make those dad footstep sounds? You know what I'm talking about? Dad, you have these, for some reason, these, these enormously, freakishly large feet that make really large sound. I think as we get older, it just happens. You're like heavier. It's like man strength, you know? So I'm coming down. 
and I hear this, this, the sound of, the, of the, the feet that always caused punishment, you know, when you're getting in trouble, and I heard them coming down, and I had this just sense and this aura of protection, and I'm like, oh my gosh, and he, I see him as I'm looking over my shoulder, he comes around the corner, he speeds into the room, he reaches down, and with one hand, he comes up, curls it, clank, 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 and I'm like, oh, my dad, my hero, and then I did what every good man does, because our ego, well, <laughs> forgot to stretch, <laughs> You know what's crazy, though? Is he didn't look at me and go, Tony, you idiot. What are you doing? You understand that this is the line and you've just crossed it. In fact, get back on the other side. Oh, Tony, this is just what we don't do. In fact, you know, you're strolled and grounded for 30 years. And, uh, he didn't do any of that. He didn't condemn me. You know what's crazy? Is he actually walked over and he sat down right there on the bench next to me. And I looked up at him. And we sat there kind of silent for a while. I'm thinking, this is embarrassing. Can you not tell my sisters, please? <laughs> then he looks over at me and he says, hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. You want to work out some more? I thought, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, okay, cool. Do you know for 20 years, he's never mentioned that story once to anybody or brought it up to me again? Because see, dads, good fathers, the ones that love us, don't condemn us and talk to us about the rules. They don't talk to us about all the hurt and the pain. They don't constantly bring up all the stuff that's in here. Reality is a lot of us have mirrors that we're looking in that are based on law. It's based on our past, abuse and things that we didn't think we deserved. But you know the minute that Jesus Christ came and Paul talked about it here. He said, you don't have to live there anymore. You get to live in hope. Because no longer is it jealousy and past and selfishness and idolatry and abuse and insecurity and lust and depression and addiction, materialism, anger, and no longer does that rule your life because the day that Jesus came, the day he hung on a cross, he sat down next to you and said, you know what, I'm gonna walk this walk with you. I'll take the weight that was just so heavy on you and I'm gonna give you hope and a plan and a life and a future. And the reality is, is that all the words that you see in a mirror are no longer there. The glory of the Lord is because a new word has been given. A new word has been offered. And that's the word grace. Some of you are sitting here and you're saying, you know what, I did commit the sin I swore I never would. And a lot of you are sitting here and you're saying, that's my life. I lived a life of rules. I want the weight off of me. And Jesus says, just look up. Start a life with me. Let me come down. Let me give you hope. You don't have to hold on to it anymore. And I want to tell you that however you came in today with the smile, the veil that was worn just as Moses wore it, today is your day to be transformed. It's your day to leave it off. It's your day to take it off and look at grace and say the cross is mine, victory is mine, hope is mine. I will not revolve in an old life, but I'm going to give my life to Jesus. And what we're going to do is pray a prayer together. And this is your moment to step up and say, it's not about perfection. It's about progression. Today I begin and start a walk with Jesus. Let's pray. God, I know in a moment, uh, I know even right now in a room this size, and I want to lump myself in 
There are literally dozens, if not hundreds, of people sitting here who say, I've lived in law. I've lived in my own rules, my own legalism. I've lived with people condemning me. I've got abuse and my past is is just hard and I have a weight on my shoulders. And right now they're sitting here and Father, I with them want to say that we as a family want to start over. Lord, there are so many people sitting here right now who say, you know, there was a time where I was free and I had liberty in Jesus Christ, but I've been consumed in all of my failure and I want to start over. And I want to ask God that right now, in this moment as you speak to their hearts, that we will pray a prayer together that says, I'm committing my life to you. That we will come before you in honesty. With every head bowed in this room right now, I'm simply going to pray a prayer. And if you know that God's calling you, in your heart right now, if you know that you need to get some things right, if you've been living under the pressure of the law and you're ready for hope, I want to tell you right now, you simply whisper these words to Jesus and this will be such an amazing moment of freedom, you won't be able to imagine it. A hope where your dreams and your purpose and your plans all come as Jesus takes control of your life. Simply whisper these words to him. Say, Jesus, I've got a lot of stuff in my life I'm not proud of. A lot of the stuff that we put on that mirror are things that tear me down and weigh me down. And I have people in my life who have constantly condemned me and come after me. God forbid I've had a church in my life who has done that. But I believe that you died on a cross for me. I believe that you rose from that cross. And I believe that right now you're sitting in heaven and you want to take all of the weight off of my shoulders You want to make me the person you've made me to be and you want to give me the life that you've called me to live. And so, on July 29th, or June 29th, I give my life to you. And I pray this in your name, in your powerful name. And I say, amen.